Welcome to another episode of LEO Radio brought to you by the J. Harris Academy of Police Training. And today I'm going to be, or I should say, we're going to be talking about um, a use of force incident that's high, highly controversial. It's in the, uh, in the news today. And uh, let's kick it off. My name is Jim Harris. I'm Colin Congleton. I'm Joey Spralaza. And we're all uh, from the J. Harris Academy of Police Training. And we're going to talk about an incident that happened in Ohio. Um, Colin, why don't you just give us a rundown of the background of the uh, of the actual stop and the encounter, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So uh, this incident occurred last week. Uh, began with an Ohio State Police trooper uh, assigned, I believe, to their commercial vehicle enforcement unit. Uh, he's out on the highway there in Ohio, and he attempts to uh, stop a tractor trailer. the uh, The initial violation was uh, the guy didn't have a mud flap, so. Um, we're going to talk in a little bit about the uh, the gram factors. We'll, we'll get into that in detail. But uh, when we look at the underlying offense, this is where the whole thing started, right? And it, it's important to point out, though, when we, we look at these minor things, um, you know, to, to remind people that law enforcement uh, are not making the laws but enforcing the laws and that there are valid reasons behind these things. And if you've ever been behind a tractor trailer and had, you know, gravel uh, chip or split your windshield, there, there's a reason for even the the minor things like mud flaps, right? So uh, absolutely, uh, this this trooper attempts to stop this tractor trailer for this, uh, this minor violation. And for whatever reason, uh, the driver refuses to pull over. So now a uh, pursuit ensues. This goes on for about 20 minutes. Uh, multiple officers end up getting involved in the pursuit. Uh, the, the truck driver finally pulls over briefly uh, and then takes off again. So now there's about another eight minutes of pursuit down the highway with this tractor trailer. Uh, at, at the end of this pursuit, it was uh, it was actually brought to an end by the use of stop sticks, which disabled the, the vehicle and brought it to a stop. And then you have the uh, the driver exiting the vehicle, and that's where most of the news uh, picks this thing up with showing the the body worn camera footage from from that point where you have the driver exiting the vehicle. Uh, I would also point out as an important part of the background to this incident that during the pursuit, the truck driver actually made a nine one one call, and in speaking to the dispatcher on nine one one, he's he's telling them that uh, he fears for his life. He believes. Uh, that the police are, are trying to or intending to kill him. And he, he mentions that they have guns out. Uh, so that this was likely during that initial stop in, in the middle of the pursuit. So that's that's most of the pertinent facts for the background. All right. And it, and of course, it's very important to, uh, to note that even though we're going to be debriefing this, we're going to be going through it, it's that we weren't there. We don't know the totality of the circumstances. Um, we are just taking a... Uh, law enforcement perspective look at this um, discussing it how it's use of force but um, as always everybody's innocent until proven guilty and um, there's there's I'm sure a, additional investigations that are going to happen there's going to be internal affairs investigations that are going to happen um, you know so we are just doing it from a law enforcement perspective only knowing based upon what's in the news at this point um, and other facts and, and items might come out. So, uh, you know, we're not casting guilt or innocence on on anything that's happening. We're just doing a debrief of the incident itself as it appears right now. 
Yeah, so, great point. Uh, I, I was actually going to mention something similar, you know, that that uh, all the conversation here is based on what's known to us at this point. But when, when you look at these things, especially where there's a use of force, the details are so important. And, and oftentimes, a lot of details are missing. They're, they're not available to the public. Uh, and, and this is one of the reasons why so many of us in our profession, uh, when when we hear other people talking about these incidents and casting judgment, you know, we, we try to tell them, uh, hey, we weren't there. We don't have all the facts, you know. And, and so, uh, yes, yeah, as, as we discuss this, you know, we're not taking sides or, uh, like you said, you know, casting, uh, you know, blame or anything like that, uh, but, but really just having a conversation about the information that is available. So let's let's talk about the the very initial thing, the mud flap, the you know motor vehicle offense. It's a very common thing that you know officers observe a minor motor vehicle offense draws their attention. Um, and I I'm glad you brought up that point that it's not us creating the laws; we are enforcing the laws that are there now. You know, to many people, a simple mud flap not on a car or not on a, uh, a, a tractor trailer. It's just such a minor offense, and it, it may be, but it, it is a safety concern, and that law is put on the books to protect motorists on the street. If you're a motorcycle driver and something kicks up, I mean, that could be fatal to, to them. Um, we've all had, we've all been on the highway and had that, that truck that kicks up that rock and chips our windshield, and it costs us money and insurance. So these laws are on the books to protect the other motorists. Yeah. It is the commercial driver their responsibility to make sure their truck is in proper working order for their safety as well as others. Um, so, you know, is let's talk about that aspect of it, that the actual minor motor vehicle offense, but it turns into something else. Yeah. I, I would also add to that too, you know, in most of these instances, at least in my experience, you know, where officers are making stops for these minor violations, uh, the, the great majority of the time, it, that's going to lead to a warning, maybe a written warning, uh, but there are countless examples of major incidents that, that stemmed from a, a minor stop. You know, and one of the, the famous ones, of course, is the Oklahoma City bomber, right? There's, you know, countless others, uh, abducted children being, uh, you know, found and, and recovered, all sorts of things that, uh, that, that can stem from these seemingly minor stops. So there's, there's good reason uh, for the officers to be out there doing what they're doing. Um, and, and when we talk about the underlying offense in, in the context of the use of force, it's also important to remember that uh, this wasn't all because of a mud flap, but rather because the person refused to stop. They're, they're driving what is not just, you know, we, we consider a regular vehicle to be a deadly weapon. That is only magnified when you're talking about a, a tractor trailer, right, and how dangerous that could be. So it's really the... Uh, the refusal to to stop to comply to follow instructions things like that uh, in many cases the you know what turns into uh fighting resisting with violence the ag assault on a police officer those are uh truly the the underlying offenses that are leading to the use of force not that initial minor violation in, in this case the mud flap so the initial incident he tries to pull over the driver and then the driver fails to stop. Um, that aspect, how how long do we think that the aspect of how long it actually took before he actually calls 911? 
It t- nothing that I've been able to find indicates uh, exactly when that call was made. Like I said, it, w- it was about uh, 20 minutes initially uh, before the driver first stopped. Then he takes off again, and it's about another eight minutes. So you're looking at about a 30-minute pursuit. It's unclear at this point, at least based on what I've looked at, uh, when exactly that call was made. All right, so... He fails to stop, but then he he initiates a call to nine one one, and during that nine one one call, he is telling the dispatchers that he he's fearing for his life. So yeah, now Joey, with with you know law enforcement today, with everything in the news, um, you have uh, a black male who's driving a, a tractor trailer and being stopped by the police for an offense that he has no idea what's going on. He has no idea why he's being stopped. All he knows is that the police are trying to stop him playing devil's advocate. Now I know law enforcement is like, well, you know, he should stop no matter what, but in today's society with everything going on in the news, what's your thought about him not stopping, but calling nine one one. But one of the pieces that we've always harped on was in discussions that I've been a big part of is education. And um, one, to me, the biggest reason that we're talking about this is not to criticize necessarily the officers and whatever's done is done. They're going to deal with it and through their internal affairs, through civil litigation, possible criminal charges, if uh, found that there was that, that much of a wrongdoing, but Part of what we have to do as law enforcement is have these dis- positive discussions to where we get better. The only reason that we've gotten as better over the years is to have those discussions. And part of the other side of it, too, in my opinion, is the education of people in general. And some of that is done at my level on the street. And it's something that I do kind of often, especially if I'm dealing with somebody that has a negative feeling towards law enforcement to try to be that professional face of our career and this this path that we've chosen to try to change that public perception. But hopefully as people are starting to see these incidents and they're starting to see how far these incidents are now escalating to where they don't have to be. I mean, we don't want to see people get hurt. We don't want to see people that are being stopped for a minor violation, have these incidents escalates. And I know we've all seen them in the course of our career, especially you, Colin, in the, the jurisdiction where you were. So in my opinion, especially once you have somebody that's starting to comply, that slowing down, using the time to your advantage is something that has to be done. And you can see the troopers that were actually part of the stop as they were trying to speak with him. They were definitely doing that. And I've been part of pursuits. Your emotions are running high. You have a ton of adrenaline. You're in that fight mode. You're ready to go. As soon as that vehicle pursuit ended, there was that time to speak with him, as well as to whoever it was that was on the receiving end of a 911 call. Uh, That's also where it's worth having supervision and highly trained supervision on on the other side of those 911 calls to be able to tell the person, you're being stopped by a marked police vehicle. There are multiple marked police vehicles. You need to stop. You need to comply. You need to be able to submit to to whatever the stop is and let them explain it to you. And I'm, so I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. There's the dispatch training. 
because the the, the key with what you just said is so critical. Um, and we, many law enforcement officers, they don't give their dispatchers enough due. The dispatchers are the critical link between the public and the officers on the street. And in that situation, the, the, the dispatcher, they actually take over as the primary contact. And you have to have highly trained professional dispatchers ready to go. Um, they are so critical in, in emergency responses for police, fire, and EMS. And to have that professionalized- it's a, it's a struggle. It is, yeah. It's a struggle because of the turnover. It's uh, a lot of people use dispatch as a stepping stone for their law enforcement career. Um, so it's a lot of people that are on the younger end. And I could tell you from what I've seen, not just in my agency, from other agencies with budget constraints, a lot of that money is put towards police officers, but not necessarily towards training a dispatcher. And it, luckily in our agency, we always have at least the sergeant that's working the radio desk that would be able to step in and have uh, have his experience or her experience be able to be able to take over a priority call like that. So yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's a piece that's worth looking at. Absolutely. And we've had, we've had, if you look across the board at numerous major events that have happened um, throughout the United States and throughout the, the world, uh, dispatchers have played critical roles in uh, taking over the primary contact of uh, with someone and, and for positive outcomes. So, yeah, I mean, they were a critical component in getting this person to to understand, hey, listen, this is law enforcement, getting them to pull over, even though this it didn't fully happen because the stop sticks actually ended up, you know, putting this to an end to bring him to a stop. But, you know, we got to we got to really look at, at all aspects of this. And uh, and the dispatcher is definitely a critical element. And just a, a few other points, you know, Joe, you're, you're talking about education and um, and you know, maybe even in a, uh, in, in a related issue, uh, you know, training, obviously that's what we're all about, right? I mean, that, that's what Jay Harris Academy is, is in existence for is, you know, training and education. So, um, that's, a, I think, a, a critical component in any incident. And for me, there were, uh, a number of ways where that, that issue shows up, especially surrounding this 911 call, right? And so you're just touching on the dispatchers and, um, yeah, I personally, uh, over the course of my career, I think the most valuable training I've ever had was, was the FBI hostage and crisis negotiator course. And, uh, that training is, is really all about, uh, communications. And I think that that's something that we should be looking at for all of our dispatchers is getting some sort of, uh, crisis negotiations training for when they find themselves, uh, on, on the other end of the line with, with somebody that's you know, in some sort of a, a crisis, as clearly this guy was, you know, if, if he genuinely believes that that his life is in danger from these officers, you know, uh, that, that's a situation where that sort of training really would have benefited uh, that dispatcher. Also, it's, it's really unclear whether or not uh, or, or how much of that information was shared with the officers involved in the pursuit and the ultimate stop. Uh, that that's certainly a question that uh, you know if, if we were investigating this we would want to know. Um, but then I, I would also point out that uh, the governor in Ohio uh, made made note of something that's very true and a lot of people don't realize, and that's the the huge variations in training and education uh, 
uh, amongst officers and agencies, you know, and, and so in this case, you had multiple agencies at a, at a minimum two. We know that uh, there was the Ohio State Police, uh, who were the primary, and then the canine officer was from a local agency, the Circleville, Ohio Police Department. So you have at least two agencies, many, many officers, and the, the training standards uh, between those agencies are, are very rarely going to be consistent. Uh, and then we see that again from state to state as well, you know, and, and uh, this is something, you know, I think that would be worth looking at in a different conversation. Uh, but, you know, national standards, we have national standards for many professions. You, you look at EMTs, they have the national registry. There's no such thing when it comes to law enforcement. And, and there are some good reasons for that. But uh, but certainly it's it's something that I think uh, we might be moving towards in, in the near future. And, and then. Uh, lastly, you know, you talked about educating the public, which is a great point. Um, and, and this is some stuff that they just don't realize that you have, you know, when they talk about the police, uh, they're not all created equal. There's a lot of different levels of training and experience and education. Uh, and one of the things that came to mind for me in looking at this was the different policies, you know, would a, would a pursuit for not having a mud flap be allowed to go for more than 30 seconds in New Jersey where we all work? You know, that's our true. our pursuit policies are very, very strict. Uh, and that's not to say that, you know, any, anybody was wrong in pursuing this vehicle. That is um, something that's, you know, debated uh, by many people, you know, when under what circumstances we should or shouldn't pursue. Um, you know, and if this turned out to be a, a, a trailer loaded with, you know, people that were being uh, trafficked, you know, human trafficking, drug uh, smuggling, whatever the case may be, you know, in, in hindsight, they would say, well, it was worth it. You don't know that until until the end. So that's a whole other debate. But uh, it's important for people to know that those pursuit policies are different from from one agency to another, from one state to another and so on. So I'm glad you brought that up because that's going to jump right into our next thing. The actual pursuit itself, people are debating about why did he even pursue that vehicle for a mudflap? So let's talk about some of the, the factors so we can educate the public um, on when or what, under what factors do we, what factors does law enforcement actually consider? Like you said, no pursuit is created equal, no training is created equal. Every state varies from here to there. But what factors do we need to consider or what does law enforcement consider when they're thinking about engaging in that pursuit? Yeah. So, you know, again, that, that's something that varies from one state to another. Uh, some places don't even have pursuit policies. It's going to be up to, uh, the, you know, the, the leadership or the supervisor uh, that's on duty at the time. Some places are, are very, uh, you know, we'll say liberal in, in their pursuits. Um, they'll, they'll chase you for just about anything. Uh, you know, here in New Jersey, again, very, very strict, probably among the most strict in the country. And um, I'm glad you brought that aspect up because, like Joey, like you just said earlier, these are training moments. And for those agencies who don't have set policy, set procedure, this is a time that you need to talk to your people. This is a high-profile case. It's in the news throughout the country. This is a time to bring it up and say, in our community, what we do in this situation is this, so that all of your people are on the same page. Um, even if you do have firm policy in place, 
discuss this high profile incident so that you can make your team better and everybody knows exactly what to do. Whether you're a traffic guy or you're a canine guy, a trooper or a local cop, this is a great talking point. Yeah, just to throw out, you know, for, for the public and, and those who are not aware, some of the things that we look at uh, here in Jersey, you know, you're going to you're certainly going to want to consider the the reason for the pursuit. Right. What is the underlying offense? Is is the uh, the vehicle or, or one of the occupants uh, wanted in connection to a violent crime, a shooting? Is there a kidnapping? Do we have a child victim in the vehicle? Is it a stolen vehicle? Things of that nature. Usually, and, and, and here we have, you know, very specific crimes, a list of crimes for which you may pursue. They're mostly going to be violent crimes. Um, you know, so that that's one of the primary factors. And then, of course, there's a bunch of other issues that we're going to look at as well. So, you know, the, uh, the speeds that we're reaching, the surrounding area, the time of day or night, the traffic conditions, pedestrians. Uh, is your vehicle safe to engage in this pursuit? The vehicle that you're chasing you know, here we have a, a tractor trailer that certainly complicates things. It's much more dangerous for, for the surrounding public. Um, so in, in the present case, you know, we're looking at what, what appears to be uh, mostly a two lane highway, fairly rural area, very light traffic, broad daylight, good weather conditions, dry roads, so on and so forth. So, you know, aside from the, uh, the fact that it's a tractor trailer and, and that brings with it, uh, you know, that, that raises the stakes a bit. Um, most of the other conditions seem to be in favor of pursuing, uh, although you know the, the underlying the underlying uh, offense being that mud flap that that would not fly here. But you know, again, not not passing judgment on that. Again, uh, you know, many many stops for minor things have led to major things. So that that's something you know that they have to uh, make that call based on their policy. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of us in this profession recognize that, but especially. When you're looking at this through the eyes of public perception and the classes I've been teaching and a lot of what I've been discussing in the roll calls that, that I've uh, done with the guys that I work with, you have to look at it from that outside view. It's the culture of looking at it from the reasonable officer only it has to be changed for some of these incidents to the reasonable person. Now, especially with use of force, we have that objectively reasonable standard set for in Graham versus Connor. It's good for us that we're being compared to an officer with similar training and experience because we are going to recognize things in these use of force instances that other people don't recognize. And if we're able to articulate that and able to articulate our actions, it's a good ruling for us. And the Supreme Court recognized that. However, there has to be the discussion of taking it one step further and looking at it from a training perspective as to even if it's objectively reasonable, is it something that you want to do? Is it something that you want to be caught on camera with? Like with, with the discussions that you've been having Jim with uh, Phil and the classes that have been taught, taught that public perception is going to focus on those minor details. They're going to focus on the fact that there's 20 police officers there. They're going to look at the totality of those circumstances that are worth looking at that, that are worth discussing but having these younger officers especially have ingrained in their heads earlier in their career saying as you're acting 
look at it from that outside perspective. Look at it from the civilian that's recording you and posting you on TikTok or YouTube. Is that what you want your family to see? Is that the way that you want to be portrayed for not only for yourself, but for this profession? If we learned one thing with George Floyd, it's that something that happens nowhere near where I work, it's going to affect me and my profession. So it's part of that training, part of that understanding, and part of the mentality to be able to get people to understand that. Yeah, you, you make a, a great point there. And, I, you know, at a fundamental level, it's really important for us in this profession to remember that we serve the public. It's easy to get caught up in the moment. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, we're out there to protect and to serve the public. And it's the public that grants us the authority to do our job. Right. And and, and as a I think as a direct uh, result or a, a display of that, if you will, you know, we've all got enough time on the job that we've seen the pursuit policy here in New Jersey evolved multiple times, right? As, as a, uh, a direct result of public pressure, you know, so we, we've seen it um, where, where the public has said, you know, we don't want to see people getting hurt, innocent, uninvolved third party civilians, you know, getting, uh, getting hit and, and getting injured as a result of the cops chasing somebody. They shouldn't have been chasing them in the first place over this minor incident. And so we saw, uh, our pursuit policy get much more strict, and and then it kind of bounced back, right? Because we saw as a as a direct result of that, uh, the the criminal population recognizing that we were not going to chase them the vast majority of the time. So they just knew all we got to do is take off. If we don't stop, they won't chase us. And you know the the ripple effect of that, right? We see the uh, the motor vehicle thefts go through the roof until there's enough public outcry and say, you know, people saying, why aren't the cops doing anything about this, that they then uh, changed the policy again and uh, added, you know, stolen auto auto theft to, to that list of crimes for which we can pursue. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a, a direct result of what the public wants and demands from us. And we have to react to that. Absolutely. So that and it's always the risk reward. It's always the risk first reward because uh, yeah. especially when you factor cars it's not just a property crime because the majority of those cars are used in serious violent crimes further uh, acts of violence robberies carjackings shootings etc yeah so, we see and, a lot of that and, and that's something it's something that's easy to sell to the public that somebody possibly was injured during a pursuit when a vehicle is wanted for multiple homicides compared to something that's what's going to be pursued viewed as a, a minor rule infraction so let's bring it to this actual stop and the event itself. So we get to the stop. He troopers, the, the troopers on scene, um, they doing an excellent, very professional, from my point of view, very excellent professional communication to have him step out of the car, start complying with their commands. Um, they were not pressing. They were not pushing up on him to create a situation where he would, um, uh, react they had plenty of distance they're good communication like i was saying so the uh that happens they they get him out of the car they start complying let's take it from there colin what do you got right so uh so now you know you have again multiple officers multiple agencies they're setting up uh in basically an l shape right we want to be uh, cognizant of a crossfire situation should should it go that way. So uh, trying to utilize some good tactics there, it looks like. 
we have a subject with his hands up. Now, the the media, uh, and understandably, they've they've made an issue. You see this in almost every report. They talk about this guy. He's unarmed and has his hands up. From the video that's been shown so far, uh, it, it is it is not clear whether we can actually say that this guy is unarmed, right? Have they have they had him at any point uh, before where the video starts in most of these reports? Because I haven't seen the full video. Uh, have they had him raise his shirt and turn around so that we can see his waistband and see if he has a weapon concealed or not? So do do they truly know that he is unarmed? That's questionable at best, right? Uh, but at a minimum, we know that he has nothing in his hands and his hands are up. And so now uh, you have where, where some of the problems start, I think. And this is one of those fundamental uh, rules or, or tactics when it comes to these types of situations and the use of force, you got to have one person giving commands and, and doing that clearly. When you have a bunch of different people giving different commands, conflicting commands, or even if they're all on the same page, but it's coming from a, a bunch of different people, that's going to be very, very difficult for your subject to understand and comply with. And And even worse, complying with one person's instructions may be perceived by another officer as a threatening movement or non-compliance. So it, it creates a really dangerous set of circumstances when you have all these different officers shouting different commands. That, that's a, a major problem here. Uh, and it's a fundamental issue that that officers should be trained on. Now, when you so, say that, I, I want to point out that the, there was uh, somebody there. Um, I'm not sure what their rank was or who, what agency they were from, but it was clear on the video, on the body-worn camera, that they were saying to the one officer, do not release that dog. When you look yeah. at the proximity of the canine officer and where that officer was saying, don't release the dog, um, was that loud enough? Was that clear enough to that officer? Um, yeah, so That's something to take so into I, consideration. That's a major factor here, right? So a lot of people are, are pointing to that and saying, see, you even had this one officer telling him, don't do that. He should have known better, right? Uh, that I have a bunch of questions related to that. Number one, if they had the the body-worn camera footage that they're, they're showing, most of the news outlets are showing the same footage. Was there footage available from that canine officer? And if so, why is that not being shown? Uh, I know that if you if you watch and listen carefully to the footage that is being shown, you can hear that canine officer shouting commands. That guy is really shouting, and you can barely hear him on that body-worn camera that's being shown. So that being the case, you take the officer that's, that's saying, do not release the canine, He's talking in a conversational tone. I would say that it is unlikely at best and, and probably impossible that that canine officer was able to hear anything that that officer was saying, which which then in turn uh, brings up a couple of other issues for me personally. And, and the main one is leadership. You know, one of the things that, that we've discussed a bunch of times uh, when it comes to leadership is you do not necessarily have to have rank to be a leader. There, there are formal leaders who are uh, put in a position of leadership by virtue of, of their rank or their assignment, but there are uh, very oftentimes informal leaders. Um, and that can be, you know, somebody that's got 
seniority or a lot of training or experience, somebody that's trusted and respected. But even in a moment, in, in an incident, uh, somebody can step up and be a leader in, in that incident, right? Here was somebody who recognized a potential problem and they were speaking to it, but they were doing it ineffectively. Uh, and there was a lot more that I think could have been done there. And, and, you know, I hate to Monday morning quarterback, but that's it's something we have to do, right? We have to look at these incidents, especially where it goes wrong and say, how could we have done better? Had that officer, uh, you know, used the command voice, had they moved, had they changed their position? You know, clearly he didn't perceive uh, this gentleman to be a threat in that moment. Had he moved himself and gotten closer to that canine officer so he was in his line of sight uh, or, or close enough that he could be heard, there might have been effective communication that could have present, uh, prevented this. And, and obviously, none of that happened. Yep. Uh, and then he even says later on that there was a, a clip uh, from the aftermath. You, know, you see the, the female officer walking away, covering her face with her hands. And then that officer that was saying, do not release the canine, he says, gee, do you think maybe I wasn't I wasn't loud enough? So, you know, so now, Joey, you know, you deal with multiple agencies all the time and you are uh, in your capacity. One of the things they're going to say and they they're saying and it's being out there is why didn't you just get on the radio and say, don't release the dog? That's uh, it's definitely part of the consideration with the communication aspect of it. And especially when you have an interjurisdictional pursuit, the difficulties of uh, managing the the aftermath of it. But to me, looking at it from a supervision perspective, there is the consideration of training and what you do with the tools that you're responsible for. Um, let's say it was the opposite. Let's say he was saying, release the dog, release the dog. If that's contrary to their use of force policy, you're not going to release the dog. It would be to make it extreme. If some we are all issued firearms as police officers, if somebody said, shoot him, shoot him, and he's standing there with his hands up, nobody's going to shoot him because of the training that we have. And we know what standard needs to be met. So I understand that this trooper was giving that command to not release the dog, but looking at it from what standard that canine officer should be at, he should be at the level of where he doesn't need somebody to tell him when to release that dog. He should know the policy. He should know his use of force. And he should have been able to recognize. It's up to that officer to be able to justify the use of force, to justify the release of the canine. And that the, the reasoning and the rationale behind it falls on him, not necessarily on the trooper. And though it's a media point and it's something that's being looked at and something that's being considered, um, in this particular incident, I don't think that it factors in as much compared to where it would be a, a long-standing hostage negotiation where, let's say that he there was a subject with a knife to a woman's throat and you wanted to consider a canine tactic. That, to me, would be more of a situation where it's a deliberate tactic by leadership at an incident. Each individual officer is, is going to be responsible for their actions and, and particularly their use of force, whether that's a canine deployment, uh, you know, using a firearm, whatever the case may be. Um, and, and that's something that's really important for the public to understand, right, is that uh, and we're going to get into the the legal analysis of the use of force in a, in a few moments here. But, um, you know, the, the objective reasonableness standard, uh, a critical component of that is the subjective perception of the officer, right, and, and whether 
whether there was a threat in that moment when they used force and, and whether the force used was uh, necessary and proportional in relation to that perceived threat. So um, here, you know, you had uh, the canine officer giving commands to the driver, get down on the ground, get down on the ground, and this guy's not complying with that. So, you know, how does that play into that individual officer's perception of, of this guy as a threat? Uh, and, and we'll discuss that, I think, in the, the next little block here. And especially when you look at the, you know, definitely in New Jersey, our use of force is very specific, very direct, and there's a lot that was put into it. Some much for the better, some was a big adjustment for us that have been in law enforcement for a while now. But one of the things to consider was the time as a, as a uh, tactic. The pursuit yeah. is over. You've been doing this for a half hour. And one of the things that we've always made the analogy of, like, you have a tag team partner. You're, your adrenaline's hot. You were the one in the pursuit. As a supervisor on scene, maybe I want you now to step back. Because you have, you have a lot of emotion involved in this now. Yeah. Taking that person that has the emotion out of it, being able to get a fresh set of eyes in here, like somebody that's not as emotionally charged with this, if this gentleman was standing there kneeling down now with his hands up, there was no immediate threat. And again, looking at this from the public view, but if they were able to take that little bit of extra time to do what you said, maybe lift up his shirt, have him turn around, show his waistband, have him prone out, would he have complied? You're not going to know the answer to that because you can't rewrite history. If you were able right. to extend this and if you were able to to use time more on our side, this may have ended differently and the public perception would have definitely been different. If the outcome was the same, but it was delayed for five minutes because now we definitely knew he was armed, the public would be looking at this incident completely differently. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, one of the things that this guy uh, – had said in the the video clip where they're cuffing him and and beginning to render medical aid uh, was something to the effect of you all had guns pointed at me. How did you expect me to respect you when you're pointing guns at me? In other words, and I, I believe this was said in response to uh, one of the officers telling him, you know, why didn't you just get down? We were telling you to get down. Uh, and so it was his response is interesting to me and in that it kind of indicates that uh, he felt disrespected or th there was there was something there with the pointing of the guns right and so we talk about uh de-escalation and, and all you know the whole bunch of different things that go into this um but like you said time is a tactic slowing things down trying to remove uh those officers who who are maybe experiencing that uh so-called amygdala hijack who are operating you know based on emotion and, and not thinking as clearly and logically as they might otherwise um a lot of a lot of different factors to consider here um but ultimately the decision to release that canine like you said you know was that uh perceived threat imminent what was the immediacy there and, and with this guy having empty hands and those hands up and having lethal cover from multiple officers with long guns uh was it you know was the threat so serious and immediate that the only thing you could do in that moment was release the canine and i think it's pretty obvious that but that's a no, that that could have been delayed. Uh, and, and there was a lot more that, that could have been done there. Uh, that, you know, and, and that, I think, is really the biggest problem with, with this whole thing. 
Also, it, it brings up the uh, duty to intervene, by the way. You were talking about our policy and you know the, the different things in that policy, right? And that, that duty to intervene is, is definitely something that, that shows up in this. And, and looking at how uh, that officer, whoever it was, wh whether or not they were a formal leader, uh, recognizing that it looks like this canine officer is about to let that dog go. Uh, you know, when you recognize that force is about to be used, that's likely excessive or unlawful or unnecessary, you have an affirmative duty to intervene and try to prevent that. Were his efforts there uh, genuine? Were they sufficient? You know, talking in a conversational tone sure. from that distance, you know, was that really all that, that could be done to prevent that? And truthfully, having been part of those types of scenes where there's pursuits, there's a lot of action, it's unfolding quickly. The informal leaders of your agency, the informal leaders of your squad will take over. Rank yeah. will go out the window at those rapidly unfolding scenes. And that person that's viewed as the most squared away, and doesn't matter if they have stripes on their sleeves, bars on their collars or not, that's the person that's going to run that show. Yeah, you know, I... I feel it, it's uh, not out of bounds to, to say this, being that everybody involved in this conversation here uh, has, has been promoted at least a couple of times. Uh, all, all too often, you have some guys that are great leaders in times of crisis who are not necessarily great at taking tests, and you have some people that are really good on test day and, and ascend the ranks and get that formal leadership that are, that are not really – talented leaders in times of crisis and I, I think that you know goes directly to your point yeah. you'll see those informal leaders really stepping up during those bad situations and, and thank god for them absolutely so what, what other considerations do you see from this incident as far as the uh the legality of it and what these officers involved are going to be facing at this point Yes. Yeah, so I think we pretty much laid out most of the important details as to you know the, the background uh how it went down you know, where things are at in, in the moment when force is used, right? So you've got multiple agencies, multiple officers giving, uh, you know, different commands from different positions. The, the guy has his empty hands up, unknown whether he's armed. He's still not complying. He's not getting on the ground as being ordered. Uh, and, and the canine gets let go, right? And, and that's, you know, that's where we're at uh, in, in the moment when force is used. And so then we can, we can turn to the actual analysis of the use of force, right? And so, with that, um, I always like to start with, uh, you know, the the discussion about where does that analysis come from? So it's important for people to understand that uh, constitutionally speaking, legally speaking, force is a seizure. And so we look to the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution for guidance as to how to evaluate use of force, because it is that Fourth Amendment uh, that protects all of us from unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh and, and again, force being a seizure, uh, it, it must be reasonable. Uh, and, and the term that we hear most often is that objective reasonableness standard. So for anybody curious about, you know, where, where that objective reasonableness standard comes from, it's right there in the Fourth Amendment. Uh, and so with that, one of the... Um, the foundational cases that, that guides us, uh, in, you know, modern day legal analysis of use of force is uh, Graham v. Connor. So, you know, don't want to go down the... The whole path of, of you know getting deep into Graham v. Connor and, and what that case was all about, but the the 
main thing to come from that uh, that people need to understand is the so uh, the so-called gram factors, right? And, and that uh, is is the primary tool we'll say that, that we use to gauge the reasonableness of a use of force, and, and that is to say whether or not the, the the force was excessive. Okay, and so those three factors are going to be the severity of the underlying crime, the immediacy of the threat, and whether or not the person is actively resisting arrest or evading officers, okay? Uh, it's important to keep in mind that this list is not exclusive. These are these are key factors that we will always look at and consider in evaluating a use of force. That does not mean that we would exclude other factors that might be relevant. Uh, to to the analysis, right? So uh, this is basically just our starting point, our foundation. Um, and for those of you that that do this kind of work, whether uh, whether you're in law enforcement or the legal profession, whatever it may be, uh, an acronym that that I find helpful to remember this is STARE, S T A R E S for severity of the crime, T for threat to safety. A for actively, R for resisting, and E for evading arrest by flight. So stare is a good one to help you remember those gram factors. So um, just to break it down a little bit more, when we talk about the severity of the underlying crime, right, uh, we kind of touched on this earlier. So in this case, a lot of people are going to look at it and, and point to the mud flap. That's not necessarily appropriate. Uh, one of the cases that, that I like to discuss in explaining this factor is the Eric Garner case, because that's another one of those high profile cases that a lot of people are familiar with. And and a lot of people uh, in the public, you know, were of the opinion that Eric Garner was, uh, was you know, choked because he was selling Lucy's. And, and that's simply not the case, right? Uh, the force was applied because he was resisting arrest. That was, that was the crime that led to the use of force. And then his further resistance. So the, the underlying crime that uh, that started the interaction was certainly minor, but it was that um, it was that resistance, and in many cases, it's the eluding, it's the the fighting, the ag assault on an officer, so on and so forth, uh, that that directly contributes to the use of force. Sure. And when you talk about the threat and talk about the immediacy, that people in our profession you need to understand and recognize that it's evolving it's none nothing that we do is static it just because something has been escalating this entire time you have to evaluate what you have in front of you at that time and it seems like from the video when he's standing outside of the the, the uh, truck this has moved so much from a pursuit on a highway to now a individual that's in front of us that we need to take into custody and how are we going to do that? How are we going to be safe? How are, we, how are we going to accomplish the mission that we have in front of us? Again, that's kind of where like the tagging somebody else in may have helped to come into play. Maybe not in this situation, but it's, again, it's just something that we speak about all the time because it's been very effective for us in our agency. You have to, if this gentleman was just involved in multiple shootings, he was shooting out the window at us. He now threw the gun out the window and he's standing on the side of the highway saying, you know what? I give up. Hands up. I'm coming into custody. I'll take my shirt off. I'll show you everything that I'm unarmed. You no longer have the right to, to shoot that individual at that time. Right. It's an extreme example, 
But when you look at the extremes and you try to look at everything in between, it kind of helps us understand that you have to look at what's unfolding in front of you at that moment. Don't sure. forget about the previous violent crime if it was violent. But now you have to to reevaluate the situation in front of you. Because that previous violent crime, whereas like the Boston bomber, when that Boston bomber was uh, was finally caught or finally killed or at the end of that, he never stopped. You had to you had to take that. It, it was constantly going. This wasn't that case. It, you're you're changing this now to where it's you have uh, somebody that's was a resistor, an active resistor. Now that's a passive, possibly even compliant subject. Yeah. So th this, I think, is really the the critical point when it comes to uh, analyzing a use of force incident. I, I think this is the the point where those of us who are experienced law enforcement professionals, uh, our position tends to diverge from the general public, right? The public, a lot of times, will look at things and say, that guy was not a threat, okay? Um, and, you know, we're going we're gonna to see things differently, right? Or, or maybe give the benefit of the doubt to the officer based on our own experiences. So there's, there's a few things uh, that I think are really critical to point out here. Number one, top of the list, is uh, simply the fact that our officers are human beings and they bring with them all of the, uh, the, the faults and deficiencies and imperfections that come along with being a human being, right? And you're, you're taking a normal human being who has some, some level of training, maybe some experience, maybe not. You know, we've had officers involved in shootings that had anywhere from, uh, you know, one day to six months on the job. So um, their training and experience might be limited to the academy, right? So we have to, this is where it's, I think uh, we're at a, a time in our profession where it's really important to start uh, moving moving the ball down the field in, in terms of training and, and what we're giving to our officers because I think we're, we're just not doing enough. But uh, but that's that could be a topic for a whole other podcast. So um, when when you take into account that we're dealing with human beings – there are a number of uh, what we can call human performance factors that are really, really important uh, to drill down on and, and look at closely. Uh, for anybody that's interested in this stuff, by the way, the uh, Force Science Institute is phenomenal uh, for getting educated on, on these uh, factors. So, um, you know, just a, a couple that come to mind, actually a, a, a good case uh, that illustrates a lot of this would be uh, the one last year from Chicago, I believe it was, with the officer uh, who's in a foot chase with what turns out to be a juvenile male. Uh, and as the male's going over a fence, he is armed with a gun. The officer shoots him. Uh, one of those rounds, I believe, strikes him in the back. Um, and the the news took a still frame photo from that body-worn camera footage that shows uh, the gun leaving the hand of of the juvenile. So basically what was happening uh, in reality was that the, uh, the juvenile was, was turning and throwing the gun as he was jumping over the fence. But now, you know, accounting for the, the, the reality that the, the officer chasing him is a human being, right. And, and he's under tremendous stress and how is he perceiving the events that are unfolding in front of him? Um, number one to point out is that the body camera does not, tell the whole story. Uh, 
the there are many things that the officer will see and otherwise perceive through his other senses that the camera doesn't capture. Uh, the officer doesn't see everything that the camera captures. So there's there's a bunch of stuff uh, when it comes to that, that that you know we need to be cognizant of. Uh, also with the cameras, you know, uh, lens distortion. What kind of lens do you have? Is it a typical fisheye lens? And if so, how is that distorting that image? Uh, how does the officer see things compared to how the camera sees things? Does the camera have uh, coating on the lens that's intended to help it capture all the ambient light that, that's in the area uh, so that it brightens up the picture? The human eye doesn't work that way. Uh, what's your frame rate? You know, one of the biggest issues with, with the body more camera uh, technology, you know, it's a fantastic piece of gear, but it's expensive. And, and the camera itself is not the major expense. It's the storage of all the digital video. And one of the ways that a lot of these uh, agencies who are always cash strapped, uh, you know, and, and trying to work with tight budgets, one of the ways that they save money is lowering the frame rate so that they can save money on data storage, right? So uh, you got to look at the frame rate and what might that camera be missing when you when you analyze that footage. So there's a whole bunch of stuff there. Um, but also, you know, you get into things like reaction time, perception time, uh, perception response time, uh, time to stop, right? So, that, you know, one of the examples that I like to use is... Um, well, two actually, one being the, the traffic light scenario, right? So you, you're driving down the road and you're approaching a traffic light and that light turns from green to yellow, you know, and, and I'll, I'll pose this to recruits and ask them, what, what are you going to do? And they all say they're going to, they're going to, you know, uh, gently apply pressure to the brake. And I call bullshit and say, you're probably <laughs> going to speed up, right? Uh, but there's a whole bunch of different things that we're going to analyze and in fractions of a second, right? What are the traffic conditions? Is there somebody in front of me? Are they stopping short? Are they going through the light? How far away am I from the light? Is it raining? Are the roads wet? Is there snow on the road? If I try to stop hard, am I going to slide? All these different things that that we're gonna we're gonna analyze again in fractions of a second and make a decision and then act based on that decision and either apply pressure to the brake or to the gas, right? And then you, you change that up and say, okay, what happens if the light just immediately changes from green to red? What happens if the light changes from green to purple, right? Now you're dealing with something you've never encountered before. You you know, that, that yellow light, you've trained for that. You've been prepared for that. You have a plan of action in your head. I know if this happens, I'm either going to do A or B. I'm either going to hit the brake or hit the gas, Right. And it's a fairly simple decision when you're when you encounter something that you've not encountered before, you don't have those neural pathways already established. You don't have those pre-made decisions. Now things get really complicated. Now, sure. now you've got a lot more work to do mentally and, and you there's much more room for error. Right. So th this you know goes again to showing the importance of training. Um, but then the, the other one, too, that's a, a good illustration of, of one of the, the human performance factors is. Uh, We'll talk about if you've ever been on a phone conversation with somebody and you know you take your cell phone away from your head, you go to hit that end call button and you hear them going, oh, hey, wait, hold on. I forgot to tell you. And you hear that it's registering and you keep right on going and you hit that end call button. Right. Why couldn't you stop yourself from doing that? That simple thing. You had time. You heard them talking to you. Right. And so this is where 
you know, it's really important to understand that when it comes to human beings, immediate does not mean instantaneous. When we talk about, hey, once the threat stops, you have to immediately stop the use of force, but immediate is not instantaneous. It takes time, measurable time, to stop a course of action that you've committed to, right? And so now putting that in the context of use of force, you're chasing somebody. You don't know in that moment that he's 16. This is somebody who is a threat to you who's armed with a gun. That's what you know. You're chasing them down a dark alleyway. They're going over a fence. They're not dropping the gun. So, yeah, they're running away from you, but they're still a threat. They don't want to let go of that gun. And now they turn and their arm is coming up. How would how would any reasonable officer perceive that action? It looks to me like that person is turning to point that gun at me. Now I've got a split second to make a decision to save my own life. I'm going to start pulling that trigger. And we know from multiple studies that officers can pull the trigger when they're shooting under stress to save their life when they genuinely believe uh, that, that they're in a life or death situation, they can pull that trigger once about every two tenths of a second, right? So now you compare that to the time to stop, how quickly somebody can turn around. Uh, and this is how you end up seeing officers, even after they recognize that the situation is changing and they need to stop shooting, you're still going to see them let another one or two rounds go before they can stop that course of action they've committed to. And in those fractions of a second that they're letting those rounds go, that person can be turning and and now you see rounds hitting them in the back. Does that mean that this was a, a murder and they intentionally shot somebody in the back? No, no. It means that they're a human being and they can't perform perfectly. So a whole lot of different factors uh, that, that need to be, you know, looked at, understood, evaluated, and so on. I, I've stolen that uh, cell phone example from you. Now everyone's going to know exactly who I stole it from. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so getting back to the uh, to the gram factors, right? So we have, you know, we already talked about the severity of the underlying crime. Now, now I think we went pretty good on the immediacy of the threat, right? That's a uh, that's a, a perceptual issue, right? Um, how, how are we as human beings perceiving the circumstances that we're confronted with? A whole lot of things are going to go into that. Uh, our ability to see, to hear, which are going to be affected by stress. We might be dealing with things like auditory exclusion, tunnel vision, so on and so forth. Um, you know, there might be past experiences or a lack thereof. You, know, uh, you may have an abundance of training and experience or very, very little. All these things are going to play into your perception of the threat and the immediacy of that threat, the level of that threat. Uh, and what it really boils down to is, is whether your perception is deemed to be reasonable and whether the decisions that you make based on that perception are reasonable. Would an officer with a similar level of training and experience have arrived at the same conclusions and made similar decisions? Uh, and, and again, we have to look at all of this uh, in the moment that the force was used, in that moment, what was known to the officer, what was confronting them, and and was it appropriate in that moment? Um, and then lastly, we're looking at whether the person is actively resisting or evading arrest. And again, these are just the three basic RAM factors. There's a whole bunch of other factors that we may consider. Um, so in this case, you know, we're, we're looking at... Um, the severity of the crime being, you know, this guy just led uh, multiple officers on a pursuit with a tractor trailer for nearly 30 minutes. 
And now uh, it seems, at least, that the perception of the canine officer who released that dog was he's giving these loud, aggressive, verbal commands, get down on the ground, get down on the ground, and the guy is apparently refusing to do that, right? And, and we touched on this before. There may be a number of reasons for that. It could be confusion. It could be uh, that he was upset about the guns being pointed at him. It could be, uh, you know, that there were conflicting commands. So there's a bunch of problems there that might have been created by the officers. Um, but in any event, you know, was it reasonable for that canine officer uh, to arrive at the conclusion that this guy was not complying with his commands to get down on the ground? Uh, and then from that point, we go to whether or not uh, his decision based on that his decision to release that dog was reasonable. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious as to what you think about that. I mean, with the limited factors that, that we have, and I don't see how it's justified. Uh, it's unfortunate that the individual that was involved in this did um, suffer an injury. It's probably even more unfortunate for these officers, how much of a, a newsworthy incident that this has become. Um, I mean, I'm sure you could speak to this. I don't know what the level of uh, necessary criminality that we're looking at here. I think uh, for the officer, as far as charges, uh, definitely worth a retraining. Um, hopefully the person that was bit was not uh, severely injured, and it's something that he's able to quickly recover from. But when you have a canine bite, you could suffer from nerve damage. You could have uh, tendon issues. There's so much that could be... Uh, put into this if he suffers some serious bodily injury as a result of this i think this officer is gonna have a really hard time uh justifying it and um i don't again i don't know the the ohio policies and how, how they move forward with this but from a civil standpoint i think he's gonna have issues yeah so there, there's a there's a lot to dig into there you hit on a bunch of bunch of good points so um Starting with uh, with the injury, right? So most states are going to classify canine as, uh, in terms of the, the level of force, as mechanical or, or enhanced mechanical. Uh, it, it is kind of its own category, but it would be like parallel to, to one of those two. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, many states, uh, New Jersey, obviously, you know, our, our uh, policy has gotten away from this uh, simplified continuum, if you will. Uh, but many states still go by that and they'll say, you know, if, if you're facing physical resistance, you, you can always go one step higher. And so uh, using mechanical or, or canine against physical resistance could be appropriate. Um, I would definitely want to see Ohio's policy on this and that officer's uh, policy from his agency. But uh, if this is any indication, uh, he's already been terminated. He's already been fired. And, and so... Uh, that would lead one to believe that there's at a minimum uh, a, a policy violation or several policy violations. As far as the injury, uh, it, that can vary as well. It seems that this was a minor injury. He was bitten on the arm, uh, you know, unknown the severity of it. Um, he, he seemed to still have use of his arm and all that. Uh, like you said, there's a wide range that can result from, from that kind of, uh, from a bite like that you know i've actually personally been bitten by one of our canines uh when i was working in a, a plainclothes capacity in our, our violent crime squad uh a few years back um you know 
chasing a guy with a gun. We we end up getting him into the yards, getting a perimeter. We call in a canine. He finds him. And uh, a canine officer was a buddy of mine. I, I go over to thank him for his help. And I'm, you know, dressed, uh, you know, not in uniform and all, you know, beard and all that kind of stuff. And then the dog perceived me as a threat approaching his handler and uh, jumped up and latched onto my arm. That was uh, interesting. And fortunately, it was, um, you know, fairly minor, uh, although pretty painful but um do you think that this will warrant criminal charges so you know there's uh there's a, a few things to consider there i, I think you're you're 100 right there's definitely they should certainly anticipate uh civil action uh, and as we know the the threshold uh you know to to win on the civil side is, is, is much much lower right it's at 51 percent preponderance of the evidence uh tipping of the scales uh, versus, you know, on, on the criminal side being beyond a reasonable doubt. But uh, when you look at the criminal side, you know, there's a number of charges that could be considered, and, and we're seeing this happen a lot more around the country now, officers being charged. Um, one of the key things to consider with that is the the level of culpability, right? Um, the the mens rea uh, that you'll hear in, in uh, legalese, right? So the, the mental state. And so for uh, for anybody that's not familiar with this or as a review, I guess, for our law enforcement officers that are listening, we have generally you're going to have uh, purposely, knowingly, recklessly uh, and negligently are, are going to be your, typically your uh, your different levels of culpability. Right. So when when a person acts purposely, they act with a specific intent. The outcome was their actual purpose in, in their actions, right? Versus when they act knowingly, a, a slightly lower level, they know what the likely outcome is and they carry on with their actions uh, with that knowledge. Then recklessly is knowledge of a risk and you disregard that risk without justification. And then negligently, uh, another step down is where you should be aware of a risk. A reasonable person would have known the risk. Uh, and perhaps the actor, uh, the person being charged, uh, was not aware, but they should have been. And they acted with disregard of that risk that they should have been aware of. And, and again, without justification. So um, looking at that, a prosecuting attorney uh, would, would have to ask, uh, first, whether or not the force was reasonable and necessary. And if they arrive at, at the conclusion that it was not, they would then have to look at the charges available and the, the requisite culpability and whether that officer acted purposely, knowingly, recklessly, and, and so on. So um, I, I would not be the least bit surprised if we saw criminal charges stem from this case uh given the current climate you know i, I think uh there's there's a pretty good chance you're you're gonna see some sort of an assault charge come out of this sure i think that uh it's gonna be pretty tough to justify that deployment in that moment um you know as you touched on before could have used time as a tactic there was a good bit of distance there um you know, a bunch of other options available. Uh, I, I think uh, most state's attorneys, most prosecutors uh, in this day and age are probably going to look at that and weigh the demands of the public and move forward with charges, something to the effect that this was excessive 
And uh, at an absolute minimum, the officer acted recklessly, if not knowingly. Sure. And it, again, just to emphasize, the main reason we're talking about this is not to continue making the same mistakes, to make our profession better, to push forward the training aspect. It's important, especially for supervisors, to constantly have these discussions. Training isn't only formal training. We have mandatory in-service. My uh, agency, I would say, is above significantly uh, where most of the country is where, with the training that they give us. I'm very fortunate for that. But that training continues by me as a supervisor in roll call, showing these videos, having these discussions, stirring up the brain of these officers, especially if you're in a slower agency. It's really worth having these these discussions. Let, let these guys that are that are working for you and guys and girls, it's not, not gender exclusive, but make sure that these guys are thinking about these these actual incidents. Let them play through in their head what they would have done in that incident if they were there, not just with this specific canine one, but with all of these types of incidents. That's what's going to develop them as an officer. And for especially for supervisors, you should be replacing your you should be training your replacement by having these discussions and by pushing forward these messages. It's what they're going to do in the future. So get those conversations started in your agency. Continue those conversations. And if you have questions, reach out to us. We love talking about this stuff. If you have other topics for podcasts, we'd love to hear from you. If there's anything uh, else that you have, Colin. Yeah, I just want to uh you know, drive home what you were saying. Don't underestimate the the value of conversations. You know, training. It's great to go to an eight hour course. You know, come come out to our case law class, our use of force class. That's fantastic. Uh, but then go back. You know, take that information, that knowledge, back to your agency and have these conversations. You know, read case law, listen to a podcast, and use that. You can get a ton of value out of a five minute roll call training, having a discussion. You know, we touched before on. What happens if that traffic light turns purple, right? You can start building those neural pathways just by having a conversation. Hey, what if, you know, so uh, don't, don't underestimate the training value of those conversations. And, um, you know, just like you again, said, with the case law, if you go to a case law class today, one year from now, how much you're going to remember that if right. you spread that, if you spread that information over the course of a year in a 10 minute roll call, even if your agency doesn't normally do a formal roll call, Start start instilling that because there's definite value. And when you have these types of instances, this is where that value really shows. It'll show where your uh, agency comes out on top. Yeah, and, and I guess one last point, just because the leadership is is really big for me. Uh, if you're a formal leader, you have to be doing this stuff. You have to know this stuff. Your officers count on you to know this and have the answers. You got to share this information with them, teach them, give them guidance. Uh, and if you're an informal leader or you want to be, uh, you know, educate yourself and have these conversations with your coworkers. Uh, we need more good leaders in our profession to step up and, and you don't have to have chevrons or bars to do that. So, um, you know, be be a leader. It starts with yourself and, and developing yourself and your knowledge, uh, you know, developing yourself as a professional and, uh, and, and move on from there. So that's uh, that's about all I got. That's all I got to. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. Again, please reach out to us if you have any other topics that you'd like to hear us discuss. Stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the J. Harris Academy of Police Training. J. Harris Academy of Police Training is based in New Jersey and provides law enforcement training services nationwide for promotional examinations, use of force, supervisory development, and other key areas within law enforcement. This podcast is utilized to discuss key topics occurring within the profession.
The opinions and information provided is for entertainment purposes only. In an effort to provide this, we often purposely discuss opposite views and opinions to spark conversation and develop discussion points. The contents of the show and show notes are all copyrighted. All blog posts, podcasts, and show notes that are distributed to the public for free can be redistributed via hard copy or electronic copy for free only if the J. Harris Academy of Police Training is included as the acknowledged author within the actual media that is redistributed. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall the J. Harris Academy of Police Training, any guests, contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of the company be responsible for damages arising from the use of the information provided.